The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 64 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that my president past employers. I would never knowingly disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or resort to my current employment, and I would never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So it was a great show last week with one of the most revered cybersecurity investigations professionals in the industry, Mr. Paul Kavikia. So Paul... He was great, man. I've been friends with him for a really long time and friends with his family. Paul has had a career much like mine, starting out in the government as a law enforcement officer in New Jersey, eventually pivoting to the private sector in New York City, where he worked his way up the corporate ladder to hold very, very senior executive cybersecurity positions with some of the world's largest and most respected financial institutions. So I was very happy to have Paul on the show last week because he's a doer right? He gets it done, right? He's one of those guys that's down there in the weeds. He's someone who knows what it's like to get down in the dirt and get things done. He understands from being in the investigations field, right? Sometimes you have to sit down and figure it out yourself, right? It's something that maybe someone never did before. Maybe it's a situation that hasn't been handled before and you have to figure it out, right? He's one of those guys, right? Back in the day, you know, I can remember, you know, when he was teaching people how to conduct these sophisticated financial crimes investigations, you know, that you don't, only utilizes technology, right, as a medium to perpetrate these crimes. Most people really had no idea what was even happening to them or who their adversary really even was. They, they just had no idea uh, back in the day. It, it was folks like Paul. It was folks like Paul Kovicia, the early pioneers, right? That's what I would describe them as, who figured out who the bad guys were, you know, and that they had an organized crime element to themselves. They organized themselves into this online mafioso, right? That no one knew about back then. And then they also figured out how we should go about implementing intelligence operations, conducting cyber investigations and disrupting operations with cyber organized crime groups and so on and so forth. So that was great. So uh, my voice is killing me today. So I appreciate you putting up with me, but uh, I'm very, uh, very feeling under the weather, but uh, I'm going to bang it out. You know, the show must go on. <laughs> so now, you, we take all that knowledge, right? Take all that knowledge and experience and translate that into a risk discussion, 
right? So that senior business executives can make more informed critical risk and business decisions, right? That's where the rubber reads the road, in my opinion. And that's where a lot of the value comes in with people with these kinds of skill sets. And it's his ability. And look, not everyone in law enforcement has it or look, even in government, right? A lot of people from the government go into the private sector and they fail, right? They fail because they're unable to pivot. They don't understand the culture. But this is a skill set that requires your attention if you're going to make the transition. And not everyone in the government or law enforcement or wherever you're coming from in the government or in the military can make the transition to corporate life because it does require a significant shift in the way you think and the way you've been trained and the way you've been communicating for years. It's, it's, a, it's a drastic difference, to be honest with you. So, in other words, for years, professionals in the government were trained to track down the bad guys. They were really focused on attribution. You know, the who did it, the who done it type of thing, right? That was extremely important because you, you can't arrest a ghost. And that's your job. Your job is to bring people to justice if you're a law enforcement officer and you can't arrest somebody you don't know who they are, right? So, and finally, you know, the, the big the goal at the end was to put the cuffs on the people to get the collar and, you know, put these miscreants in jail. That was the big grand prize. But it took a lot of shifting, right? Back in, in the early 2000s, law enforcement officers, specifically federal agents from the FBI, from the Secret Service, from ATF, places like that, they started getting recruited to these large corporate Fortune 500 companies who desperately needed their skill sets to defend their companies against this onslaught of cybercrime and cyber attacks that they were experiencing, where they learned very quickly that risk executives couldn't care less about who did it, right? The guys that are making the transition, the guys and girls going in from the government to the private sector, they learned real quick that the risk executives in the line of business, they don't care who did it. They, they, they could care less. And even lesser about putting the cuffs on someone. Like if you talk to them about that and you're over there, like you lose their attention like almost immediately. And obviously you lose a lot of credibility with them too. So you got to understand, you see for, for risk executives, it's all about root cause analysis and implementing mitigating controls to manage risk, right? That's their job. That's what they do. And they see it sort of as, as a more, uh, not only obviously effective way, because it is a more effective way to manage and to talk about risk, but more intelligence way to discuss some of these issues. So, so then at some point, say around the late 2000s, there was a meeting of the minds, I would say. I would describe it as sort of like a meeting of the minds where these former government guys, these former law enforcement gals came in, working in the private sector, agreed that putting on the cuffs was not the mission of any particular security group in the organization, and nor should it be. But they were able to convince the old school risk executives that when it comes to cybersecurity, attribution did hold value to their operations. And out of those discussions, the intelligence-led cybersecurity model was born. It's all about knowing your enemy and knowing thyself, right? That's where we start, right? You got to know yourself. You got to know your enemy. And to really understand what's happening to you to have any type of predictive knowledge uh, of, of what's going to happen in the future. And this thought process spurred many exercises, including annual threat assessments, followed by annual threat to capability assessments, right? Which translate into annual risk assessments that drive risk discussions. And these risk discussions happen with executives over what their real risk appetite is 
for the firm. These are people who make risk appetite decisions for your company, which in turn coincide with your annual financial planning cycle, which finally coincides with defining the pillars in your cybersecurity strategy and defining your mission and what you're going to do and where you're going to put your money and all that kind of stuff. So yes, this is not an easy thing to do, uh, but it can be done. And when it's done correctly, cybersecurity executives can talk very, very intelligently about the budget ask they bring to their boards to drive cybersecurity operations, cybersecurity programs, cybersecurity administration that will give you the biggest bang for your buck. Now, speaking the language of the business is paramount to your success, absolutely paramount. And in last week's episode, Paul Kavikia explained how he took actual intelligence and root cause analysis from cyber investigations and turned that into risk-based discussions with line of business risk executives. So if you missed last week's episode, I highly recommend you find your favorite playback medium, launch Task Force 7 Radio, and listen to one of the most successful cybersecurity investigators in the industry, Mr. Paul Kavikia. It's all on episode number 63 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes. You can find TF7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 Radio fix. Wherever we are, folks, you can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, TF7 Radio Playback, and your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. We always love it when you subscribe. And folks, I don't want to forget to mention, too, that, uh, you know, check out the TF7 extras that we posted up on both the Marriott Breach and the Cora Breach. I mean, these are the shorter sort of current news and analysis episodes that we did. They did very, very well. They have a, lot, a ton of listeners for the first time we did this. And I've gotten some really good feedback on them. So I think I'm going to buy out a few more soon to see if they can continue to gain in popularity, just like our weekly one-hour shows have done every month, month after month after month. The show's just growing organically, which is fantastic. So if you get a chance, take a listen. I think they're, they're only about an average of about 15 minutes each. It's a quick listen. I think a lot of people love that format uh, for these types of things. And so just check it out. Grab your favorite playback medium in the TF7 radio library. It's episodes number 59 and number 61 respectively. It's all good stuff. So, well, it's time to talk business. We're going to have yet another great show for you this evening. We're going to have a friend of mine on the show with us uh, for a very long time. He's, uh, he worked in the Secret Service together. Uh, we, you know, we both worked in the Secret Service together, and we have similar experiences again in the private sector. Mr. Levi Gundert is going to be here to keep us up on the intelligence and risk theme of the last couple episodes that we've been doing. So, Levi is the Vice President of Intelligence and Risk at Recorded Future, where he leads the continuous effort to measurably decrease operational risk for customers, right? And I want to continue this conversation. This is very, very important. Levi has spent the past 20 years in both the government and the private sector, defending networks, arresting international criminals, and uncovering nation-state adversaries as the Vice President of Cyber Threat Intelligence at Fidelity Investments, and as a special agent with the United States Secret Service, Los Angeles Electronic Crimes Task Force, before joining Recorded Future. So he's got a 
huge, huge experience in this space. He's held senior information security leadership positions across the technology and financial services uh, fields, and he is also a trusted risk advisor to Fortune 100 companies, a very prolific speaker, blogger, and columnist. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Levi Gunder. Levi, welcome to the show. Hey, George. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Hey, so uh, you know, the last couple episodes, we've been talking about intelligence and how we translate those discussions to risk. And I want to start out by doing some level setting here on what true intelligence is. So in your view, in your professional view, with all the experience you have in this space, what really is threat intelligence? How would you define it? Yeah, so I can give you an academic definition that's going to be super boring. And to be honest, I'm not as interested in, in the academic stuff. So, I mean, practically speaking, you have an internal space which network defenders and so forth operate and sort of inside controls. And threat intelligence is understanding and exploring the adversary space. It's that space where the adversary exists. And, you know, there's a lot that comes with that, but it's, it's essentially uh, increasing your awareness. And, and that comes in a lot, of, a lot of different shapes and a lot of different forms. But, you know, that's essentially what we're saying. And obviously, the perimeter is disappearing and, and the way that companies operate, the way that digital transformation is happening means that there's certainly less of a boundary between the internal and the external. Uh, so I think threat intelligence is, is really that, that adversary space. And, you know, when you talk about threat intelligence, it's easy to say that it should be high speed and there should, you know, should always be about actor TTPs, you know, the tools, the tactics, the procedures, these sorts of things. And, and that's fine, and, and that's certainly threat intelligence, but there's also an, uh, sort of an entry level into threat intelligence, which is just some of the basics, right? If you look at, practically speaking, if, if, I can, if I can receive alerts about actors setting up domains that'll likely be used against me later in, in a phishing attack or for some sort of intellectual property theft, or I can get alerted when I've got developers who are posting proprietary code into a code repository, that's threat intelligence as well. And so there's a, there's, there's a huge spectrum in terms of the application and the way that we see it working out in the industry, both strategically and, and operationally. But I think that that's kind of the, the basic definition. So you heard me talking about earlier in the, in the segment here about how attribution is important. And I think from what you just described, if you're not familiar with the, where the adversaries hanging out and what they're doing and their TTPs, I mean, you really have to know who they are. If, you're not, if you don't have attribution, then you really, you can't even do the things you just described. You, you, you say that's correct? Yeah, and it's a really interesting debate because, you know, I talk to people on both sides of it. And a lot of times, if, you, if you're talking about senior executives in the board, a lot of times the, the perspective is, we don't really care who is behind the attack. What we care about is identifying the security control gap and remediating, right? That's what we care about. We don't, you know, whether it's, you know, the 500 pound guy in his basement or it's someone overseas looking for a government, we don't really care. But I think that is short-sighted. I think that attribution absolutely does matter. And I, I say that it matters at a high level because motivation informs methodology. And if you don't understand the motivation behind the attack, then it's going to be a lot more difficult really to address the security control gaps. And so I, I think that you don't need to work on attribution down to someone's name and address and picture, but I do think it's very helpful to have a general idea of attribution in terms of, you know, this is, this is roughly the country and the group, and this is the motivation, this is the ideology, because that really does help you 
when you're looking at predicting future attacks and you're looking at your security controls through that lens. I, you know, I couldn't agree more. Is, in your opinion, does cyber threat intelligence making a difference for security programs in reducing risk? Or is it you think this is, you know, I think this is going on now for, it's got to be, you know, maybe 15 years when it started mm-hmm. in finance. I'm not sure we can even mm-hmm. describe it as a trend that right now, but do you think it's a buzzword or a trend that's going to go away or a tactic that's going away, these intelligence-led threat models? I don't think so. I think that, to your point, it's a very nascent industry. Financial services really were the first to adopt and build threat intel programs, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, law enforcement and the intelligence community, military, have obviously been doing this for a long time. But in business, I think it's been tricky. It's been a little tricky to focus the programs in terms of measurable goals and outcomes. And I don't think threat intelligence is going away. I think that it's going to actually accelerate in terms of adoption. But I think the form matters tremendously. And by that, I mean, you can certainly go build a threat intelligence team. You can staff it with former law enforcement professionals like like you and I and, and intel folks and so forth and so on. But the problem is that a lot of times when folks come into that type of an environment, a business environment, they don't necessarily understand what the outcome should be for the business. And, and so, you know, we're really fortunate at Recorded Future. We have hundreds of customers and, and we get to work with a lot of CISOs and so forth. And it's interesting because sometimes they have a hard time wrapping their head around priority intelligence requirements. And it's, sometimes it's hard to get those from the business. And if you don't have the high-level intelligence requirements from the business and the various lines of business, then sometimes what can happen is a threat intelligence team can dissolve into producing a daily report or producing a weekly report that doesn't necessarily have a significant impact on business decisions. And so, so just as an example, right, you have a gaming company and they're deciding to move operations from Las Vegas out to Macau. Um, how, how does that business decision, right, how does threat intelligence help to inform that business decision in terms of what they will see, right, after a move like that? Or, you know, the organization is thinking about spending a lot of money in a particular type of uh, technology upgrade, or, you know, they're moving everything on site, they're moving it all to the cloud, right? Those are intelligence requirements that a threat intelligence team can, can work toward to inform, and you'll have a lot of success there. But unfortunately, there are some organizations that can't get the buy-in from senior level decision makers who say these are these are the things the business cares about. These are the things that you know the business is focusing on. And if you don't have that buy-in, then you're setting up the threat intelligence team for failure. And that's that's one that's one piece of it. Where I think a lot of organizations are having success is they're they're really applying threat intelligence across their existing security function and stack. So they're using threat intelligence as a force multiplier. They're using it to turbocharge those functions. So vulnerability management, incident response, security operations, even the the pen testing, the red teams, those teams and functions that are already there are using threat intelligence uh, and usually in a programmatic way to turbocharge what they're already doing. And I think for for the small and medium-sized businesses especially, this is where they're seeing a lot of value because they're able to actually measure how they're improving security controls. And when you're able to measure it, then, then you're able to communicate it. And that, that's a much more powerful value proposition for the business. So I think it has to be one or the other. If you're going to build that threat intelligence team, you have to be invested at the top of the organization 
and really setting the intelligence requirements. And if you do that, you can be successful. But otherwise, right, you, you really want to focus on deploying it across that security function and worrying less about how you actually build, you know, a team of analysts. So I think that's a really good proposal about why businesses should invest in cyber threat intelligence models. I mean, are you seeing these CTI investments gone wrong? I mean, do you see some people just spending money in the wrong places? I mean, I mean like it, it can be a little bit of a disaster. I mean, if you don't know what you're doing and you're trying to set up an intelligence program, you have no experience doing it, uh, you could spend a lot of money on a lot of useless stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's the reality sometimes, unfortunately. And, and I come back again when, when you talk to some of the threat influence teams and you talk about the objectives and what the goals are, you know, if the only goal of, if you build a, just for example, you build a $5 million threat intelligence team, you know, between the analysts, the tools, the vendors, so forth. And, and the goal of, of their, what they produce, their deliverables, their reports. And you said, you know, what is, what is the goal of the report? Well, the goal of the report is to increase awareness across an organization. Well, that's good. There's nothing, there, you know, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's, some, there's some good things that can happen out of that, you know, for the legal team, for the marketing PR team so forth and so on. But if that's the only goal, functionally what you're doing is you, you have people producing reports and you have people reading reports, but there's nothing coming out of that. There's no doing, there's no action. There's, no, there's nothing measurable in terms of improving security that comes out of that. And so that's a very dangerous position to be in. And I think there's some enterprises that have jumped headlong into threat intelligence and building out a team without backing up and first really understanding what it is they want to achieve, you know, with that program. And that, that, that's just a very dangerous place where you're potentially wasting resources. So what's the right way to do it? If you're looking at uh, a process that's repeatable, that's actionable, that's measurable, what is, what is the right way to do it outside of those things? I mean, is there anything else that people should be thinking about when they're building these intelligence-led processes and programs? Yeah, so again, number one, if you're going to build a threat intelligence team, you have to make sure that you have the buy-in on the intelligence requirements up front to say, you know, these are the 10 intelligence requirements we have, and we expect that these will change with some frequency. So that could be quarterly, it could be semi-annually, it could be annually, but the, the intelligence requirements from the business need to constantly be reevaluated, and, and they need to... Uh, change and and that's what the intelligence team should be producing reports toward is is fulfilling fulfilling the intelligence requirements given to them from the business um, and that's that's where a team is going to have success but the other place they need to have success is measuring the operational security improvement so creating new security controls improving existing security controls and again across the entire security function um, those are those are sort of the the KPIs, if you want to call them that, um, that have to be have to be put in place. You have to have you have to be able to measure how you're actually improving operational security, and you know that really comes back to thinking through the types of data that you will need, the types of people, and the types of skills that you need. You know, there's a lot there's a lot of different types of data out there. Um, you know, you can look at a passive internet monitoring. You know, malware metadata. Um, closed sources from criminal forms, you know, technical sources. There's roughly, you know, six buckets of data that sort of all threat intelligence data comes from. And you have to, you have to start with, you know, these are the goals. These are how we're going to measure our goals. And then this is the data and the tools and the people and the skills that we're going to need in order to, to actually achieve it.
So Levi, we got to take a little time to go to commercial break here, but we're right back to talk some more intelligence and risk in just a moment. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we're right back with the Vice President of Intelligence and Risk at Recorded Future, Mr. Levi Gunder. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the Vice President of Intelligence and Risk, at Recorded Future, Mr. Levi Gunder. So, Levi, we were talking before the break about how you measure uh, intelligence programs, the successful way of doing things, how sometimes intelligence programs fail because they're not implemented properly, maybe not looking for the right things, maybe they don't have the right processes. How should CISOs measure the efficacy of a CTI program in your mind? That's a great question, George, and I don't know that there's necessarily a, a silver bullet answer for it yet. I think we're all sort of struggling with what the right metrics are in terms of our industry. But I I think, again, you have to start on the strategic axis. You have to think about, again, if you have those 
intelligence requirements from the business, then you can think about how many, how many reports are we generating that are actually affecting business outcomes. And that's, that's kind of a tough one to measure because you need the feedback from the CISO. You need the feedback from the other parts of the business, other lines of business. And, and that can be a, a tricky one to measure. Certainly possible, but it can be difficult because you do need that input. But if you, again, if, if you have the intelligence requirements, then at least you have a, a pretty good baseline internally to understand, you know, a given quarter, given year, uh, how many reports you're able to generate that, that are sort of hitting the bullseye of those intelligence requirements. But I think on the, on the operational, some folks call it the tactical piece of threat intelligence. I can't help but think of tactical videos on YouTube. So I stay away from tactical and, and just stick with operational here. But on the operational axis, there's a lot of things that you can do in terms of measuring the improvement to security controls. So one of the, one of the places that threat intelligence plugs in really well is around SOAR. SOAR is the security orchestration automating, automation and response, SOAR. And that's, that's everything from correlation of indicators that's happening in your SIM to, to other places where you're doing orchestration for things like, like TTPs. And that is an operational place where you can actually measure not just what the correlation is, but how many are, are actual true positive events, how many are false positives, and also measure the efficacy of the threat intelligence data that, that's coming in uh, to that, that sort of process. Um, you can track on the vulnerability management side. One of the things you can do is you can track how many internet-facing systems you have that are seeing or experiencing some type of remote code execution vulnerability and you can you can look at how many how many times threat intelligence is actually able to give you better context on whether that remote code execution potential is actually being is actually happening out in the wild so you know of those uh, you know there's obviously a lot of different types of vulnerabilities the ones that things like local privilege escalation tend to be not as severe, but when there's a new vulnerability and it does involve, you know, remote code execution, how many, how many systems are affected? That's something, you know, internally, but then, you know, threat intelligence is that, that key component where how, how much is threat intelligence or, you know, how many of the vulnerabilities that fall into that category is threat intelligence actually providing more, more context for, I think, you know, when you look at the SOC, you look at the IR teams, you can absolutely measure how much time you're saving on a typical triage incident in the incident response world or even in the SOC player. You know, how many more tickets are you able to triage? How many more alerts are you able to triage? Because you have that threat intelligence context that is coming in with those alerts and those tickets. You know, you can measure, are you seeing a 30% increase in terms of the number of tickets that you're able to process? You know, the alerts that you're able to triage. You know, that's, that's absolutely something that you can measure. So I think there's, there's a lot of different ways to measure. It really just depends where you're applying threat intelligence. And hopefully, you know, if you're applying it, again, operationally across all of your security functions, you know, you're, you're going to be carving out specific metrics for each one of those and, and making sure that you're tracking those things over time. So why do you think these cybersecurity teams are having such a difficult time measuring risk from these cyber threats? Well, so that's a great question, actually. And I think we tend to confuse the term threat and risk. 
as you and I know, George, there are a lot of threats out there and we can break things down into categories and, and we can map things to frameworks and that's great. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of threats out there. We, we, we're all aware of that. However, when you talk about risk, risk is something very, very different. And there, there's a couple of ways to talk about risk, but from the business side, you know, there's, there's upside risk, which is we may miss an opportunity. That's an upside risk. But really, in our world, we care about the downside risk. And the downside risk is, are we going to lose money? And if so, how much money are we going to lose? Right? That's all that the business cares about, practically. At the board level, that's all that risk is. And you say, well, you know, our reputation is being impacted and our brand's being impacted. Okay, let's quantify that. How much money do we lose? And, and that's really what the business cares about. So when you talk about risk, you know, that's the language of business. And, the, you know, the folks at the top of the organization at the board level, they may not speak the language of technology. They may not speak the language of security, but they understand the language of risk. That's the language of business. And that's really where there's a disconnect sometimes between the cybersecurity, IT security function and the rest of the business. And I think we all as an industry have to get better at speaking the language of risk and being able to assess risk because most of the threats that we see on a daily basis, they're not actually a risk to the business. And that's an important distinction. And so, you know, that really comes back to measuring risk and being able to assess risk in a meaningful way. And that, you know, that's a whole other topic and conversation, but I think it's super important to understand because a lot of times we tend to want to get reactive. We see something new in the news, uh, there's someone's fire, you know, someone's hair is on fire upstairs because they heard something on the radio on the way into work, you know, and they want answers from the threat intelligence team. And a lot of it tends to be reactive where there's some new threat, but in reality, it's not a risk because the business already has security controls in place to address the threat. So I think what threat intelligence teams especially have to do is they have to start moving from, you know, a, a specific threat reactive model into a risk centered approach. And that really goes for the entire security program. You know, we, we've seen this over the years where y you ask someone, what is, what is the overarching objective of the security program? They say, well, you know, we want to increase maturity around NIST, or we want to increase our maturity level around ISO or COVID or whatever it is, whatever the, whatever the, the compliance framework is. And the compliance frameworks are, are great. They're great tools. But if that's the end goal of the program, you're in trouble because there's, there's gaps in the compliance frameworks. They don't update as quick as they should uh, to, to map to the threat landscape. Um, people look at it as, okay, well, I get, to, I get to check the box and move on. But if I tell you, look, the, the framework says you have to implement firewalls. Okay, you implement firewalls. And then you don't configure the firewall properly. Well, you check the box. It says you have firewalls, but you know you configured it to allow all incoming. Well, that's not that's not fulfilling the spirit of the compliance requirement. It's 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 the letter, but it's not the spirit. And that tends to happen is when you when you put an entire security team together and you say, look, this is the goal is we want to go from a two to three on this. People, go, okay, well, how fast can we check the boxes here? And they're not thinking through. Is that actually what we need to be doing or, or should be doing, you know, all the way through? And that, that mentality can be bad. That check the box mentality can be very, very harmful. And I think where you've seen a lot of the breaches over the last five years, 
a lot of those organizations were very focused on, you know, we got to improve our compliance maturity. So we're kind of moving, I think, as an industry, realizing that compliance is, you know, there's things obviously that we have to do for governance and compliance. But if that can't be the objective, and I think, you know, we're starting to see that and moving away from, you know, compliance, moving away from very reactionary threat-based approach into a risk-centered approach, which is to say, let's figure out what the risk actually is for our business. And then let's spend our resources in those areas where we're not comfortable with the risk, right? And let's put the resources around security controls and people and process and technology where we actually have risk of losing money. So when you look at this probability versus uh, impact, right? For probability versus impact matrix that we always do, and you look at typical risk programs, a lot of the typical risk programs, they monetize the risk, right? When I look mm-hmm. at cybersecurity professionals and I talk to cybersecurity guys across the industry, a lot of them hate to do that. They hate it. They mm-hmm. put it like because they're afraid that the you know at least this is my opinion that they're afraid that the the uh, the CIOs or the the board or the, the CEO of the company is going to nail them down on a budget and you know decrease their their budget ask based on how they monetize mm-hmm. the risk. Do you think it's smart to monetize? Or well, first of all, do you think it even can be done? Because that's the that's a that's another debate, right? That you can even monetize some of these cybersecurity risks, just like other traditional risks are monetized. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic question. I think that it's a good goal to quantify risk. I think you have to caveat the results a little bit because to your point, you can't, you, ha- you have to quantify, but you can't just take it wholesale to senior executives and the board, you know, without having a little bit more context wrapped around it. And I think it is a, a very worthwhile goal for the reasons I mentioned before. And I think that the problem traditionally has been you have these GRC groups, the governance risk and compliance groups, and they have to measure risk for a whole lot of other factors beyond cyber threats, as you know, you know, economic risk, um, geopolitical risk. There's, there's a lot of different risks out there that they measure. And they, they try to apply that same formula to cybersecurity and, and cyber threats, and it doesn't, it doesn't quite work well. And the reason for that is typically Someone from GRC will come down to an analyst or an engineer within the security function team and say, look, you know, what's, what's, what's the probability that we get hit with a denial of service attack this year? You know, and the, and the analyst is sitting there on the keyboard typing away and they, they look up annoyed that they've been distracted from what they were doing. And, you know, they put their finger up in the air and they say, I don't know, call it like 30%. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, 30%. So what happens is you get garbage going into the model and then you get garbage out of the model. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, prob- likelihood of occurrence times impact. But if you're not actually putting rigorous assessments around the variables, I'm sorry, the values going into that formula, then you just put garbage in, you get garbage out. And the people that are making management decisions based on what's coming out of that are basically making bad decisions because it's bad risk analysis data. And I've got to tell you, I read this book by Douglas Hubbard couple years ago called How to Measure Anything in Cybersecurity Risk. And it really was a game changer. And I think it's a seminal read for everyone in our industry. And I've actually worked with our chief data scientist at Recorded Future, Dr. Bill Ladd, to come up with a a risk framework. And we're just calling it internally the the threat threat category risk framework or TCR. And the thing about the the model that, that Hubbard puts out is that we're really bad at estimating things and we tend to want to go directly to a value like 30% for likelihood of occurrence when in fact it's better to start with a range. So, you know, George, if, if I said to you, 
you know, what's the likelihood that, that you're going to undergo a denial of service attack this year? You know, would you say it's, it's 0%? Is there a 0% likelihood? No. Yeah, there's, no. And would you say there's a 100% likelihood? No. Yeah, it's so, it, right. It, so it's somewhere in the middle. So the, the thing that, the, the point that Hubbard makes in his book, which is a great point, is that you really have to start with an, uh, an estimate of a range. And so you put a lower value and an upper value on it. So if I said, and don't Google this, George, but, you know, when was, when was the Battle of Waterloo? Hopefully you don't know this. No, don't know it. But what, what, so you don't know it. So what would you, what would be your lower bounds? What, where, if you had to come up with a range where you figure it, you know, the values fall somewhere in that range, what would you say? What years no would idea. be like? <laughs> I have no idea. Just, Zero, really. I mean, probably be, you know, I guess early 1900s, something like that. I have no idea. Well, like what's, what's the lowest, what's the lowest year? What's like, give me a, 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 the lowest year you think it possibly in the highest year it could have possibly been. I have no idea. I mean, you know, I go, I go 1850 to 1950 or, or, or 1850 to, uh, to, uh, you know, nine, 1920. Let's do that. Okay. So that's a pretty tight range. So the battle of Waterloo is actually 1815. So, most of the people, if you go through this exercise, you realize we're all pretty overconfident. We're all pretty overconfident in what we think we know. And this is kind of what, Doug, what Hubbard points out in his book, is that once you train yourself to be an estimator, to kind of calculate and figure in those things that you don't know, especially the, the black swan events that people tend to not want to include in their analysis, then you, you tend to get to the point where you're a better estimator right, of the range. And then you can take your estimates and you can run Monte Carlo simulations. And I know that sounds super boring, but it's basically just an Excel spreadsheet. And you say, look, this is the range for denial of service. This is the lower bound. This is the upper bound. And the same thing for monetary loss, right? We could lose $50 from denial of service this year. We could lose $50 million from denial of service this year. And you let the Monte Carlo simulations take care of it. Uh, it will run the scenarios. It'll take a random value out of the range and you'll do that a million times and you take the, the mean value out of it. And statistically, that's a, a valid way to actually estimate risk. And so you can do that for each threat category and it's actually pretty meaningful. Now, what do you think cybersecurity you, folks don't like to do what you just said? Because if I have, you know, I, I have a, often have a, like a very robust, fun conversation with my friends about this, right? And we get into discussions, sort of like the questions that you just asked, and we start bouncing things back and forth. And if I, you know, it seems to me like when I sort of survey the crowd, it's the techno technical guys, the more technical group that never, never wants to estimate or monetize, not estimate, but monetize a risk ever, right? And then there's the, the line of business guys, you know, sort of like the information security folks that are embedded in the line of business. They're like, oh no, we could do that. You know, we could do that because yeah. they're in the line of business. They're always hearing them, you know, basically speak that way. And they, they know that it could be done in some respect, maybe, it, but it's very difficult to your point. So why do you think it's the technical guys versus sort of the line of business guys and information security that kind of butt heads on this? Well, I think, I think traditionally, if you go back, you know, IT security, you go back 20 years, 15 years, there's always been sort of a firewall between the technical guys and the technical security guys and the rest of the business. And, they've almost encouraged the firewall there. It's almost been, Hey, you know, you, you folks over there, you use spreadsheets and you use PowerPoint presentations and that's great, but we deal in bits and bytes. We deal in code. Let's, let's just, you know, kind of keep our world separate, right? We, we know security, you don't. 
And that's, I think that's such a mistake because again, the business has tended to look at functions like the incident response team and the SOC and so forth as cost centers, right? And in the last five to 10 years, the business has start to un- started to understand that those teams are actually security controls that help manage risk. And they're actually enablers for the business as they implement, you know, digital, digital transformation and they adopt new technologies to, to maintain market leader status or, or get there. And so the IT security groups and, and these cybersecurity functions really have to see themselves as part of the business that enables the business. In order to do that, you, you have to be able to talk in the language of risk. And I understand that sometimes the tech guys don't want to go there, again, because it, it you know, can potentially negatively affect budgets, like you said, or people won't understand some of the nuance in the results. But I think there has to at least be a conversation internally within the cybersecurity group, even if you don't want to take the results of the model uh, out to the rest of the organization. I think just internally, it's helpful for you to understand that just because you've been doing something a certain way for a long period of time doesn't mean it's the right way to do it for the business anymore. Because again, if the business is not going to lose money from that threat or threat category, then you really shouldn't be investing your time and your resources as a technical security person on those problems. You really, sh- you really should right, be focusing in the areas where you're going to lose money. And I think that's, that is a radical paradigm shift in the minds of a lot of security professionals, but I think there has to be some buy-in, at least to, to try, the, try it out and say, look, let's, let's try to quantify risk. Let's talk about the model. Let's talk about the variables. Let's talk about the assumptions and make everything transparent internally, right? And let's just have conversations about it. And that's just a place to start. And I think, you know, we have seen uh, some financial services folks and, and customers moving in this direction. And again, they're, they're not just running, they're just not, you're not running the CEO and the board, right? Saying, you know, look at what all this means, right? It's, it's a cautious approach, but I think it's, it's a, a meaningful approach because it's a place to start having the conversations. And I think this is a trend that you're going to see over the next 10 years is a much more alignment between IT security groups and the business in terms of how they talk about risk and, and what they do about it. Yeah, this is a really interesting conversation. And I think, you know, we could probably talk about this you know, for a whole episode, really, and I actually might do do one on it, but I have just a couple more things before we get to break. I, I, you run the research team over there, right? You're at, at, at Recorded Future? That's true. Yeah, so, so what are you guys focusing your efforts on in 2019? Where are you focusing your resources, and what are you guys thinking about doing? So our research team is called Insight Group. It's a ode to our, our Swedish heritage. Our founders are both from Sweden. And we focus on different threats, both in the criminal space and the nation state space. And right now we're primarily focused on the big four in terms of China, North Korea, Russia, Iran. And we're really expanding uh, on the criminal front. You know, we've been very focused on, on Eastern Europe and, and China, but really moving into South America as well in 2019. And there's, you know, it's, it's a very interesting time because of the geopolitical landscape and everything that's happening. And, there's a lot of parallels in the cyberspace and, and tracking those has been very, very interesting. And it's been just a, a lot of fun to work with the talented team that we have at Recorder Future. 
So we talk a lot about the uh, talent crisis on the show, and, and I just want to get your opinion on what kind of skills that you're looking for, or the people you're hiring for this research team, because, you know, there's, there, it just seems to me there's so many jobs out there, and, and people are actually going to war, especially the higher you get, the higher level you get in cybersecurity, the, the harder it is to find someone uh, that really fits the skill sets and, and, and needs of your organization. What kind of skill sets are you looking for for your team? Yeah, that's a great question. It's, I think, you know, and I would love to get your opinion on this, George, because you, you have a ton of experience in this area as well. I think for, from my perspective, the people that I look for, I, I call it the three C's. So I look for people that are curious, that are creative, and that communicate well. And I think if you have those three C's, I think the skills that you may or may not have in terms of developing, those are, the skills can be developed. If, if you have a basic understanding of how the internet works, if you have a basic understanding of, of how uh, malware works and, and you have a good foundation, but you're curious and you're creative and, and you communicate well, both, both in, in written and oral communication, then you're going to be successful. And I think that's when you talk about a researcher and someone that's continuously doing research, those are the characteristics that I, I really want to see in the folks that we hire. And then the other thing is just building a, building a team and building a culture that's, that's really respectful of each other. I think sometimes it's easy in the security industry, it's easy to develop an ego, especially when you're a researcher, you're publishing things. And I think one of the things that we're, we're really careful about is making sure that egos are always in check, making sure that there's just always that mutual respect for people in the team. And I, I very much subscribe to Timothy Geithner as philosophy. So no jerks, no whiners, no peacocks. And I think, you know, that's, that's, that's also very important. Okay. So I think, I think intellectual curiosity is probably the most important thing on an intelligence team because you really have to have someone who goes beyond just the information that's presented to them. They have to be very analytical in nature. And I don't think mm -hmm. they need to have a cybersecurity background. I think you need mm -hmm. to pull these skill sets from other places. Um, I, I tend to, when, I, when building these teams in the past, I kind of feel like I've always separated a little bit of that, you know, the research analyst and the person who is actually putting the communication together. I think those people actually come from communications departments. And to your point, communication is a huge, huge deal. And how we communicate that intelligence is incredibly important. You know, I used to write flash reports for uh, the executive committee and the board that went up through the CIO over at JPMorgan Chase, and this was like a bi-weekly thing or something, and it was a pretty painful process, you know, how you're going to actually communicate what's happening both internally and externally, how you combine it, how you, you know, communicate the risk. Um, there was a lot of effort that went into these flash reports that were, you know, basically just small, you know, one-pagers and some sort of one, two, three-pagers sometimes, but, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of work that goes into that, so I'm not sure that you could always find all those skill sets in the same individual, but if you, you know, break it down in the roles, I think you can do it. And I think uh, right now I'm just a little frustrated at the fact that people are, you know, in these information security organizations are looking for folks who speak their language day one, right? Who, who mm -hmm. actually, their resume actually speaks out loud to them that it's their language day one. And they're not looking for skill sets outside of, okay, this guy's going to make my life real easy day one. He's going to come in and do all this work for me. And, you know, it's obviously going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It, and I think those days are gone. There's just not enough talent out there. We have to teach people new skills. I don't know what your thoughts are. No, I 100% agree. I think you're spot on. I think it's easier to train folks in terms of the technical pieces 
there's, there's a lot of good programs out there to get people up to speed quickly on, on the technology and the security side of things. If you have motivated people, to your point, who can creatively solve problems and are fundamentally curious, that, that will solve for a lot. And then to your point, right, about communication, that's kind of paramount. And you're right. I mean, it turns into sort of this unicorn search. But like you said, I think if you can take away the, if you can take away the, the technical piece and, and you can focus on, on those people and training and mentoring those people, then I, I think, you know, you're setting, setting yourself up for success. And I think a lot, of, a lot of times there are sort of unrealistic expectations on the hiring front where everybody wants senior people. Well, there's a lot of good people coming out of college, a lot of good people graduating out of universities. And that's really where you want to tap into because that's where you get people at lower price points that are happy, you know, to be on a different career track. And, and again, as you support them in their career development, you know, it's a place where you have just longer, longer potential for staying in the organization than with someone who's more senior. So Levi, we're running along. We've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with the Vice President of Intelligence and Risk at Recorded Future, Mr. Levi Gunder. Listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. 
If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the Vice President of Intelligence and Risk at Recorded Future, Mr. Levi Gunder. So, Levi, let's continue our discussion on threat intelligence. And, and we were talking about talent before. What about organizational construct? What should a threat intelligence team look like? What's the organizational construct and how, do, how is that sort of engagement model, that cyclical uh, engagement model or swim lanes, how does that work? Well, from, from what I've seen, George, and, and there's a lot of ways to build a threat intelligence team, but I think organizationally, they actually work really well when they're part of the incident response team. And I say that because you're not, you're not building out a new silo. You're, you're building out a function within an existing team that traditionally has probably been there for many years. And so there's going to be less friction in terms of what that team does and how they work with other teams. And I've seen this, this work really well where you take some, some experienced folks from incident response and you put them into a, a threat intelligence function. And I think traditionally the financial services sector especially has pulled people from the intelligence community that have intelligence background and they understand the intelligence life cycle. And I think it's good to have those types of people, but I think you also need people that come from operationally technical backgrounds that really understand security controls and how to build them. And I think you want a mix of both. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different backgrounds that play well into threat intelligence professionals having success. But I think that's kind of what you're looking for in terms of the composite and then also where the team will sit. So what's the difference between threat feeds and threat intelligence, right? Where everybody has these threat feeds coming in. And I think you mentioned before we send these reports out and people read them, they don't read them. What, what's the difference? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of people get down on threat feeds. There's, there's, there's a lot of pejorative statements about threat feeds. And in reality, threat feeds are great. But you have to caveat that with understanding where the feed comes from, where the data comes from, what goes into the feed, and what makes it useful. So again, I come back to something like a SOAR workflow where you're taking threat feeds and you're doing correlation with your internal telemetry, the logs coming off of your security appliances or devices, and, and that's a valuable workflow and process, but it's only valuable if you understand, again, what's in the feed and where it comes from. So if, if you're just buying feeds wholesale and you don't really understand how the feed is created and where it comes from, you're, you're probably doing yourself a disservice. So the, the feeds are generally just indicators. They're, they're indicators, IP addresses, domains, hashes, so forth and so on. And they get packaged up and typically you're going to, pull them or someone's going to push them into your environment with some sort of periodicity on the hour, once a day, whatever it may be, again, can be very useful and very helpful, but you really have to understand the context first and understand what you want to put into your environment to do that sort of correlation. Um, and that's really what a threat feed is. Um, and again, threat intelligence, there's a lot of different forms and flavors. Um, it doesn't have to be a report. Threat intelligence can be something that's, again, programmatically being applied, again, into something like vulnerability management or to your SOC workflow. Um, it's, it's really, again, the, the insight into the adversary space. So how you, how you obtain that, how you process it, 
there's a, there's a lot of different ways to, to do that. So here's a tough one. I think I've been thinking about the optimal way to have an organizational construct around threat intelligence teams now for some time. And we've got some pretty robust debates about where these teams should sit in a security function, right? Should it be an incident response team? Should it be on the vulnerability management team? Should they be their own entity in a security operations team? Should we have, you know, other intelligence teams combined with the cybersecurity team that enhance the analysis like geopolitical analysis and regulatory analysis and what have you, even executive protection uh, feeds. Most of that executive protection stuff comes right off the internet anyway. Um, what is your thoughts on this about where they sit in, in, in a security function? Well, I think it's tricky because if you're going to build a new threat intelligence team, sometimes it's hard to be the new kid on the block. And I say that sometimes when you're in an enterprise, there is friction because there's overlap. To your point, there's overlap with the, the cyber threat intelligence group will have overlap into so many other teams. Right? And their job, their job should be to really be a force multiplier for all of those functions. But the problem is sometimes you get into these, these political nightmares where people feel threatened. You know, they feel threatened about their job and their function and their role in the security group. Right? And they don't want to play well with the, the, the new kid on the block. And so sometimes you find that the threat intelligence team kind of gets siloed off. Nobody wants to work with them. And their mandate is to supercharge all these other functions, but nobody wants to work with them. You know, they can, they can help the fraud team. They can help vulnerability management. You know, all the teams you do, the functions you just listed off, geopolitical, physical protection. Uh, but sometimes in really large enterprise, it's, it's hard to do that. And that's why I say embedding it into an existing team is sometimes the easiest way to make them productive quickly. Because again, if the threat intelligence team gets siloed off and they're not getting the input they need from other teams, uh, both north and south, but also east to west, they're, they're, uh, yeah, you know, they people are going to leave. Yeah, if you don't have the fusion going on, it's a completely useless exercise, right? Right. Yeah. So, and, this, and, and we, we've seen this happen frequently. So I think your question is a great question because it's actually one of the most important pieces to think through carefully because if you don't think through that piece, you're, you're just setting them up for failure and eventually everyone's just going to leave. So, you know, you had a lot of different career paths that you could have took within IT and security. You know, how did you end up in threat intelligence? What drove you to threat intelligence? Well, I think, you know, starting out in Secret Service, you know, I was a special agent out of the Los Angeles field office, and I set up a couple of cyber operations within the Electronic Crimes Task Force. So like you, George, you know, I come from, from a law enforcement background. And I think, you know, this was over 15 years ago, but back then, it was obvious that we had to do threat intelligence to be successful as criminal investigators. When it came to cybercrime, we couldn't wait for the phone to ring. And, and listen to a victim because by the time we were taking a statement from a victim, any hope we ever had at, at bringing that case to a conclusion was pretty much over because the data, the data that we needed would be gone, you know, within 24, 48 hours, legal process would take forever to get. And you know the story. So we had to start developing threat intelligence to be proactive and to be out ahead of when these things actually happened. Um, where we actually had a fighting chance of putting someone in handcuffs and bringing that case to a final disposition. So for me, you know, I was very fortunate that I was sort of meeting people in the internet security community 
back in the early 2000s as a secret service agent because it was these folks in the private sector, partnering with them was what really made me successful as an agent. And they had the tools, they had the knowledge, they had, you know, the data and they they were just hugely instrumental in in helping to make these cases happen and set up some of these operations. And I think that's kind of, you know, for me, that's where threat intelligence started. And when I left government and I went into the private sector, for me, it was really interesting to try and think about how threat intelligence applied to the business and what the business needs to get out of it. And it wasn't a straightforward proposition at first. And so I have been thoroughly enjoying my career. I've been so fortunate to work with the people I have. And, you know, all along, it's really been this journey of discovery on how threat intelligence really should be helping the business. And um, I think just now, you know, I'm coming to the point where I really do have a better understanding, but it's taking, uh, it's taken many, many years to get to this point. And I think, again, where we live in the geopolitical space right now in the world and just the interconnectedness of everything and, and the accelerating trend that that is just makes it such an amazing field to work in. And for anyone that's listening, you know, if you're considering a career in threat intelligence, cyber threat intelligence, I really, I can't recommend it enough because every day is different. The challenges are different and, and the evolutions just continue. And if you love to learn, if, if you always like to be in that space where there's something new to learn, cyber threat intelligence is just such an amazing field to be in. So what, what, what would you recommend and what kind of guidance would you give some of these young folks or, or even seasoned professionals that are trying to get into, you know, the cybersecurity field that are interested in becoming a cyber intelligence analyst? You know, what should they do? Yeah, so there's a couple of things you can do. I think, number one, there's always local meetups. So there's a lot of different organizations out there, organizations like OWASP that have monthly meetings in, in pretty much every, every city that's out there. Um, there's different types of information security meetups that are available. And I think just starting to meet people locally in your area that are kind of in, in that same field or close to your field is a great starting point. Um, any, anything that you can do online to just show your interest, right. And some of the things that you've learned, whether that's, you know, starting a blog or just putting things out on, on your social media, you know, that helps sort of demonstrate your, your desire, your interest and passion in this field. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of good certifications and security courses out there, but, you know, just, just networking, right. And as you know, like networking is a, a big thing and just meeting people in your in this field, in this space is, you know, one of the best things you can do uh, to eventually sort of set yourself up for one, for a transition like that. Levi, I really appreciate you coming on the show with us, man. I hope to have you back often. Hey, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for the opportunity, George. Hey, happy holidays to you and your family. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you. You, you too. All right, folks, we run out of time once again. Before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.